I'm going to make X this year. I'm going to take 10% of X and I'm going to invest it in real estate every single year. And I know that Driven Capital Partners is going to let me come in at 25 grand, 50 grand a share, and I'm going to get to do two or three deals a year. And I don't have to do anything. And on a quarterly basis, they automatically ACH transfer to me any cash flow distributions. And on a quarterly basis, they provide me an investor update. That is passive income. People talk about investing in real estate for passive income. It's not passive if you're the operator. That, that's a job. That's what I do. This is my job, right? This is Dan Kennedy, Major League Soccer veteran, managing partner of Driven Capital Partners. And this is the game plan. Today, we welcome former Major League Soccer goalkeeper and member of the executive board of the Major League Soccer Players Association, turned real estate investor, Dan Kennedy. Dan, welcome to the game plan. Yeah, come on. It's a pleasure, guys. So you played soccer professionally for 12 plus years. And during that time, Major League Soccer went through a ton of change, you know, continues to expand to this day. What were some of the biggest changes you saw as a player? Well, so I, I came in the league in 2005 and really it, it wasn't a league that I thought to myself, like, you're going to go have a career and set up your future financially for your family. It, it, it was like, you know what? I'm graduating from UCSB. I just had this amazing collegiate soccer experience. I don't want it to be over. I'm not done with the challenge. I haven't satisfied the thirst or appetite, you know? So I had the opportunity. Well, I got drafted by Chivas, which was an expansion team that year. And it was the first year that they drafted what was called, I think it was the development draft or the supplement draft, right? So I think I was the last goalkeeper selected in the last round of the supplemental draft. So it's like, if you're not an afterthought, like by then, I, I, I damn near just didn't get drafted and it probably would have been okay. <laughs> and so I was drafted by an expansion team and that was Chivas USA. And that the other expansion team was Real Salt Lake. And that, that made the league 10 teams whole. So think about that. Wow. 10 teams whole. And they went from 23-man uh, rosters up to 28. And so... And this is like 2008? 2005. 2005. And, and the gift-wrapped present that you received if you could make the 28-man roster as a supplemental player was $12,000 a year. I'll let you guys digest that. Now... Yeah, so pre-tax yeah. amount... I mean, dude, no my paychecks were like $284 by monthly, right? right? <laughs> and so so I was like, I didn't care. Honestly, I was like, I just want to go do this. And I, I mean, when you live as a collegiate athlete, you're like, I'm freaking poor anyway. The reality was I was getting more money from my scholarship, food, and housing stipend than I received as a professional soccer player. But backstory, I had been involved in a really bad car accident. Me and my family got hit head on by a drunk driver on the 101 freeway. And we didn't, I actually started, um, I reached out to Mercedes Benz and we ended up doing a commercial for them, a, a, a real survival story commercial. And the commercial got was picked up and aired worldwide. So we made some royalties off of that. And that actually funded my professional playing career because what I made would not, you know, would not get the job done. And so after being drafted, Chivas passed on me 
New York was in need of a goalkeeper. New York Metro Stars, now the Red Bulls. I was drafted in the USL, which is second division by Puerto Rico Islanders with my roommate in college, Drew McCathy. And we're like, ah, Puerto Rico might be fun. And so I went and had a cup of coffee with the Metro Stars living in Jersey, living in a, like a Ramada Inn in Hoboken in February, in January or February, making $250 a week, eating McDonald's for breakfast. And then Bob Bradley was a coach and he was just straight up with me. You know, he's like, you're never, you're not going to play here. Johnny Walker's hurt. And when he comes back fit, we're going to release you. And I was like, handshake deal. No problem, coach. Like, I want to experience this. And then Puerto Rico called and was like, hey, we need a keeper. And so I, I just went up. I went to him. And I was like, Bob, like, I got the opportunity to go play, like, play in two weeks in the USL. And he's like, we'll release you right now. So went down to Puerto Rico. And, and by the way, not all coaches would do that. Put a player first, right? So he, he was he was a stand-up guy. And then Drew and I were like, F it, let's do it. We'll, we'll play in Puerto Rico and just experience, right? Life experience. So we ended up, you know, spending our 2005, really the inaugural professional season in Puerto Rico. And I started and played every game and won rookie of the year of that league. And so I was like, I got a little more in the tank, you know? And my goal was to make it back into Major League Soccer, which didn't happen for another two years. And I ended up, after my second year in Puerto Rico, I went down to Chile because I was just ready for a new experience. And one of my goals was completely not soccer related, but it was to learn Spanish. I was like, this is perfect opportunity, you know? And after a year in Chile, opportunity presented itself to come back to Major League Soccer. And then my career gained a little bit of momentum. And it's all she wrote, man. And then it was 10, 10 years straight in Major League Soccer man, it goes fast, you know? So now really my focus is pivoted because I know how fast it goes is investing in real estate and helping guys in the league and in my network. I'm trying to just break down the barriers and to allow them to invest a little bit easier and with a, and with much less risk. Yeah, definitely. And and we want to touch on obviously the, the, the work that you're doing uh, as an investor and, and working with other players right now on that piece about expansion. I'm so curious because now Obviously, expansion has picked up. You're starting to see a lot of athletes get involved. Now, like thirty teams. It's like, like twenty. It's like twenty six. Yeah, I think was crazy. the last number and I saw. Like, that, like it, episode it, we do because there's another team added. Yeah, there's yeah. twenty six today, but there's like yeah. three more coming. Totally, totally, and and it does seem like so. I'm I'm curious on your end as a player when you're when you're seeing this expansion happen, when you're seeing major international stars start to come from the EPL and sort of have their their retirement tours in LA or, you know, wherever it is with Beckham. Like, how does, how, how does that change for you as a player that the state of the league is in such flux? Well, I mean, we, th- this is where the founders of major league soccer understood what was happening at the grassroots level in the United States in the nineties and early two thousands, like the biggest youth sport in the United States. And we don't have a professional league for it. So the insight there, like just from a strategic business perspective, is brilliant and the amount of investment it has taken in order to get it to where it is today is nothing short of remarkable because it's still not a, a cash flowing business this is a this is a forced equity play for these owners and it, they they get to claw down some losses and depreciation in the process now for me when i look around i'm like shit man maybe i should have 
should have stayed fit and played a little longer because <laughs> the league just keeps <laughs> expanding. There's always another team to go play for. But physically, I was at my end from an injury perspective. And that's the toughest balance for the league is to grow in size like that, expand the talent pool and continue to maintain the integrity of the quality on the pitch. And so that's why you see the influx of international talent coming into the league. The, the days of Europeans and South American or global icons coming here for a retirement tour are long gone. Now it's about the yield that you're going to receive from the investment in the player. So Galaxy took the biggest risk, signed David Beckham, a complete exposure play. Where would this league be without Beckham? Nobody knows. And rightfully so, he was granted uh, ownership stake in a team because of it, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that like if we're just talking about leverage and business and sense and smarts, like this is the best deal. This is maybe one of the most remarkable deal in sports history. And now you're seeing guys um, invest into other sports franchises. Look at uh, the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs alone. Yeah, Mahomes. Right? Yeah. I mean, just, just like that, now the mentality is shifting, and Beckham pioneered that. He pioneered that through Major League Soccer. But now you see the teams, Atlanta United, buying a star in Almiron out of South America and capturing a huge reward for just nurturing his talents for two years in Major League Soccer. And now they go make, you know, $7 million on the player, sell them to Europe and rinse and repeat. So it is, a, it, then it becomes a viable business model to go and try to execute. And so the, it's this combination of expansion, diluting the domestic talent pool. So it's in order to maintain quality, you need to go source talent. And instead of sourcing the global icon in a retirement state, let's go find the next star and then play on the international transfer market. So I, I, I think MLS yeah. has had a lot of growing pains. And one of them is, has just been highlighted um, in Chicago with the fire. And we had this model of we don't care where you build a stadium, just build it. Right. This was 2000, the, you know, the, the story of of all the years leading up to the Great Recession was it doesn't mm -hmm. matter where Carson, California, build it. It doesn't matter. We if you build it, they will come mentality. And those stadiums became of entertainment outside of Major League Soccer, which led to profitability for these owners. Yep. The stadiums yep. were often profitable, but then. The transfer happened where the urban core markets of Seattle, of Portland, of Vancouver, they started coming into the league. And the fandom that followed was that that actually created culture. For the first time in Major League Soccer, we started seeing organic culture, not manufactured, right? You have guys and gals marching up and down the street carrying scarves with the following a band I'm, I'm literally getting chills like talking about this because i got to experience that as a player i when i was in puerto rico i played in the seahawks stadium i think it was quest field at the time in front of like 1300 yeah. people like 1300 people in a 900,000 seat bohemian yeah. i'm yeah. exaggerating yeah. but like the stadium <laughs> is huge and it was like hello 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 you know, and, and when they got the team, I was like, 
this 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 could be a flop, you know. And then forty four thousand people they're selling out every game. I mean, it's just yeah, it was an incredible thing to witness. And then people start turning their heads. And when you look around the world at the weekend, and you're like, okay, well, Real Madrid and Barcelona played. They had seventy five thousand fans. AC Milan and Inter Milan played. They had sixty five thousand fans. And Seattle played Alley Galaxy, and there was 58,000 fans there. Those were the three most attended games in the world. Yeah. And that's when you go, okay, Man City's like, we'll come in, right? Yeah. Yankees owner, yeah, we'll partner with you. Uh, Red Bull, let's get us on board. And so that's where – that seemed to be the pivotal shift of Major League Soccer is when you started bringing in these cultural clubs – that had these stadiums in the urban core of the city. And now, to me, the strategy is very clear. And we're seeing it play out in real time because it's like yep. LAFC. If you you guys should make a trip when this whole COVID thing passes and there's people allowed in stadiums again and just go to an LAFC game, you'll be mm-hmm. hard-pressed to go experience a better live sporting event in the United States. It's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. It's unbelievable. Well, and I was going to say, and, and, and the media rights are starting to become more valuable, right? So you start to look at, okay, if you want to buy into a league property, you know, NFL can't touch it, NBA, you better be a billionaire. But okay, if you've got a, a decent amount of capital and you want to buy into a, a sports asset that you know is on the come up, where do you turn? And that's where, you know, we, we talk about this on the show a lot, where you start to see athletes at the peak of other sports start to then come in and, and want to be you know, owners in the MLS. And there's protection because it's single entity. There's no promotion. There's no relegation. And there never, I, I, I don't envision a world where there ever will be in Major League Soccer strictly because of who the owners are and why they're doing this, right? It may be the right thing for competitive soccer in the United States, but who would approve it? The owners aren't going to approve yeah. it. And when you think about, I, I was looking at it, I'm like, wow, Charlotte paid what? 280 or $320 million to come into this league? Are you kidding me? Newcastle United's and the BPL, they were for sale for 300 million US. But the difference is there's you buy Newcastle United, you can be in the you could be in League 1 in 2 years. That's the risk associated with it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 TV revenue if you can stay in the Premier League is much sweeter, but it's been proven that you need to go and spend and spend heavily to stay in the Premier League. Um, so that's it's a, it's a risk adjusted rate of return to Major League Soccer. Major League Soccer, the one thing that they can they can that they've proven is stability and continued growth. And the growth, yeah. when you compare it to other professional sports leagues in the United States, is exponential. That's the crazy thing: is the yeah. fandom yeah. growth in Major League Soccer is catching up to the Big Four or Big Three every day. And you and you were part of the the executive board of the MLS Players Association as well for for a little while. So, so proudly so. I, I guess looking back on on that time now, what would you have done differently, or what did you sort of take away from that experience? Well, I recommend every young player in the league gets involved with the union because you'll understand earlier on in your career what the core values that are important to players are going to be, and those are not going to change. The core values are always going to be 
term of contract, compensation, health benefits, right? And making sure like you as a player can monetize the success you have on the field. It's hard enough to be successful, but if you're living in a system that does not reward success on the field, and we did, we lived in this system, and we're t- now I'm talking about free agency, then you will not make any money. You won't. Your wages will be suppressed. So I joined Chivas USA in 2008 from Chile. Jim Curtin, head coach of Philadelphia Union, was my roommate. Jimmy was, I mean, not only a great friend and a fantastic teammate, but he was one of my mentors. I mean, he told me the same thing. He said, you need to get involved with the guy, kind of guy you are. You need to get involved with the union. So I did. And by 2010, I was representing my team in labor negotiations for a CBA. And then by 2014, I was on the executive board and leading that negotiation on behalf of the players. And I look back and, and we made significant steps and strides forward. No one is satisfied. No one is, is, is content or, or even happy but we saw progress and we saw progress without work stoppage. The threat of work stoppage has to be real. And the one thing that we did, you call it collective bargaining, and it's tricky to get everybody on the same bus heading in the same direction. But the one thing we did is we, uh, we accomplished just that. And we accomplished it so much that some players, myself included, would not have been satisfied with any deal because we knew what we wanted, right? But this is when you have to, you, you step up to that line and you have to decide what's better. What's better for everybody? That we take this deal that we've negotiated extremely hard for or we walk. And if we walk, we're walking into a world of uncertainty and pain and players aren't going to get paid. People are going to lose their homes. There's going to be hard conflict at home with spouses, kids. It's real. And you have to recognize that. And I think as that's why it's important you have this generational growth and you cl- like you have the older group as part of the executive board leading this conversation. And in the end, we decided to strike. And we thought it was yeah. done. And the reality is it ain't done until it's done. And so the next day we woke <laughs> up and we had another offer on the table. And it was one that we were like, you know what? We can accept it, you know? Mm. And so it was a it was a moment that it's actually probably one of the most pivotal moments of my entire career. And it happened in the boardroom. Right. But it was about representing everybody in the league for, you know, for my time, I came in the league where league minimums were 12 grand a year. And in 2000, going into the 2015 season, I think league minimums were like 60. Right. We had some form of free agency for veteran players, which was the first free agency ever negotiated by a professional sports union without a work stoppage, right? Now there were terms and conditions, like see, you know, exhibit one, A, two, three feet, B, H, I, whatever. (laughs) So you learn, you live and you learn, but you put a system in place that could be built upon. And that's what the league was so concerned about. They were scared about putting in a new rule and not knowing what the effects were. Well, we put in a new rule. And what the league learned was that it wasn't that big of a deal. The players that did well got paid. And now you're seeing it play out. 
And so, but that happened in 2014 and now we're seeing it play out, right? So now labor talks are diff, it's a different conversation because the league wants to spend money or the owners want to spend money. They know if they spend money, it's going to drive the valuation of these clubs and it's going to create a better product on the pitch. So yeah, yeah it was uh, the executive board, the union, the players, you can tell I'm still passionate about it. Yeah. It was, it was a, really a highlight of my career to be able to participate. And it really set me off on the track of going to business school, challenging the narrative, being a leader and learning how to be a leader and learning from the older guys. And that's, you know, a lot of leadership for, from my experience was learning how other guys went about it and just kind of saying, you know what, the way Jesse Marsh can, can run a locker room, like that's how I want to, that's how I want to run my locker room, you know? So it was, it was a fun experience. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. How much of that energy that you picked up on in those boardroom negotiations really fed into you starting to think about, you know, life beyond the soccer field and, and what you were going to do post-career. Yeah. I mean, I really thought that I was um, going to become a GM or a president. Like that was what I set out. That's what I set out to do. I was like, okay, I want to go run a club, but I want to do it my way. And so I was like, how, how am I going to set myself apart from all these really smart guys? And so I was like, well, I got to go to business school. And so I applied to USC and Got in and was just like, all right, giddy up. Let's go. Let's go learn. And man, talk about like 30, I think it was 34 years old. So I was one of the older guys in my class. Sure. Computer illiterate, you know, like what's email? I know what Facebook was, but I didn't know what email was. Dude, just talk about a huge challenge. All these other kids are like 28 years old, been working at Ernst & Young, just pounding pavement, you know, like super like way smarter and prepared than me, you know, what I found out was I was still good at leading. And so I could lead teams. I, I, it was a good, like, it took me, it took me probably three months or a quarter to get my feet under me and try to understand like, okay, like this is what you do well, but you can't like, there's nothing else. And I don't do anything mm. well. Like I, this is how I was actually this way as a player. It's like, I'm just solid, like just consistent. Mm. And so, but I could pull people together and have these relationships and garner this team. And our team, we had a team of four other uh, students. Over the course of the two years, man, we really got into like this zone. And I, w I always thought whenever we had our pitch presentations or we were problem solving, like we found this zone that worked for all of us, you know? And so it was, a, it was a, it was just a perfect experience for me. And I was still bullish on the idea of, of getting into leadership in major league soccer. And, and then my, I re, when I retired, I started working at the galaxy and I just had these competing, these competing worlds that I had to kind of navigate. You know, I think your humility that you just stated, you know, not being good at anything. I don't know if that's exactly true for someone who had a 12 plus year career in, in any professional sport, but, um, it sounds like that in a lot of ways was your secret weapon going into business school, being able to humble yourself and, you know, be the oldest guy in the room and, and do something completely different. Oh, and you can imagine like it's, to me, it's irrelevant, right? But it's, uh, the reality is you go like, oh, that's the guy that plays for the galaxy. Right. That's the guy like the teachers, the students, like everybody, everybody knew that I was the professional athlete in class. And this isn't SC. 
this happens all the time. You got ex NFLers, you got, you know, it happens all the time. It's, it is not abnormal, but you have a little highlight, you know, and like opening is actually a good story. So I was like, by the time I got to the galaxy, I was 34. I had nine surgeries in my career. Like I was, I was at the end, you know, and I tore my growing first kick of the first game with the club while I was on the field. I never really found my way back on the pitch. So I kind of, it felt right, you know, like, okay, I'm going to business school. I'm in my hometown. I'm at the club that I want to be at. I, I was, I grew up a Galaxy fan, Kevin Hartman fan, like Jorge Campos as a goalkeeper. And so like you have opening weekend and it's like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you got nine hours of work and then you have to prep your pitch competition at night with your team. And I was like, I got, I got a fucking game. <laughs> Excuse me. I got a game. <laughs> no, it's all good. So I was like. So Bruce, Bruce Arena, Bruce knew what I was doing. He's fully supportive. Bruce is another, like, I consider him a mentor. Like, talk about a great leader and manager. Just man, just knows how to just manage people. And so I was like, Bruce, listen, dude. Like, if I don't go, I don't qualify to start the program. And my fear is that if I wait, in a year's time, I'm going to regret it. That's the situation I'm, I'm in. Tomorrow I'm not starting. It's the day before – it's the practice the day before games, like – it's a 45 minute run out. I'm like, I'll come yeah. here at six in the morning. I'll have the train. I'll have the physical trainer meet me. I'll train. And then I'm going to miss practice. If you're only, if you're with your blessing, like if this is a problem for you, it's a non-starter for me. I'm here. And he goes, go do your thing. Like, no big deal. Right. No big deal. And, um, so supportive. So I go and I, I had school all day Friday, had school all day Saturday. Don't tell anybody. I ducked out of school at like 4.30 without telling anybody, right? Like, Because if, if they said, if I wasn't going to be there, I didn't qualify. So I was like, 4.30 Saturday, I'm like, I got to go sit on the bench for my team. Show up. Sure enough, what happens? Goalkeeper gets hurt. <laughs> I'm in the game. <laughs> no right? way. Yeah, in the game. So now I'm like, but I'm in like, like game days, you, you just, you, you get in the zone, you know? So I was even in, I was at school, but I was already like kind of prepping. You know, so I get in the game, play, played fine. Like I was just super steady player, not too high, not too low. But my team was doing the pitch competition that night, like prepping it. So then I, I, I was like, well, I'll buy the hotel room. Everyone meet at the hotel room. I'll get there by 10 o'clock. And in the stories in business school are like, you, you're going to stay up till two o'clock working on your pitch. You know what I mean? Yeah. So by the time I get there, everyone's done. You know, it's been a long two days anyway. I'm like still sweating. I'll just never forget it. Go in the room. Remember being like, okay, guys, just tell me, just give me my part. Like I'll, we'll crush it. And then the next day, like Sunday shows up and everyone's like, dude, I saw you playing the game last night. Like what the, you know, it was just a, it was a funny way to kick off the, kick off the whole experience. Yeah. Burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. And then that my, we had the time we had a two year old and, or maybe one and a half year old. And then my wife got pregnant while I was in school. So I was going to business school. I was going, I'd go just basically train in the morning and then go to SC and do night school from three to nine forty-five, three days a week. So I was, I mean, talk about a full-time gig. Like I was really grinding, really grinding yeah. for two years. It, it is interesting. We, we hear from a lot of athletes that as they enter that sort of first year in retirement, the thing that they miss the most is these sort of three core pillars of, team routine and competition. Yeah. And it seems like hearing your your stories from B school that you kind of found that right going from, you know, playing while being in B school 
you sort of found what you had on the pitch, off the pitch with your with your B-school well, colleagues. And the hard thing when you're an athlete is like the what is so clear. Like, okay, what do I have to do today? Well, first of all, I got to be at the stadium at 8 o'clock and someone's going to serve me breakfast. And then <laughs> I got to be in the gym by 830 to do my pre-prep, you know. And then and, and it's all just like so easy. And you're like, and I'm just going to go through it and just bust my A and just kick ass and compete. And then and it's I'm, quantifiable. Yeah. And either then, you, you and know, then I'm either going to have the score. A, and... Yeah. I'm either going to have a good practice, a mediocre practice or bad practice. And I'm either going to feel good or bad. Yeah. Like, it's very quantifiable. And, but then at two o'clock you're like, well, what am I supposed to do now? I'm supposed to go home and rest and relax being a pro athlete is one of the most challenging things because you, you're challenged with yourself and your insecurities and am I ready and am I good enough? And that's why it's, it's such a compelling thing to experience or even watch, but it does not prepare you very well for life after sport. And that's why, you know, historically we've heard the, the, the horror stories of people burning through millions of dollars and, and really struggling. And it's because what are the tools? You you have a PhD in professional sport that you play, and unless you can apply it very valuably to highly competitive jobs, coaching, GM, then you're going to struggle. You, you, so you're just not set up for success. Fortunately, I thought like every year was going to be my last plane, so I was always kind of like, "What's next?" You know, <laughs> I was like, "Okay, I'll be in." Com my fallback was always commercial real estate. I was like, "Okay, all my buddies are in commercial real estate." the the goalkeeper at UCSB that I broke all of his records. He he started Radius Group Central Coast. I was like, so I'll, I'll be in commercial real estate. So every year is like, okay, okay, okay. And then the Great Recession happened, and all my buddies started losing their jobs. And I was like, well, I'm making thirty three grand a year, but at least I'm making thirty three grand a year. And so honestly, if if the Great Recession didn't happen, I don't know if I would have stuck around as long as I did in soccer. But it it just continued. I just wasn't satisfied, super hungry player. And that's what we used to, we'd always tell young players, like, you got to eat, man. You got, like, how are you going to go and, and earn your meal? You got to eat. So, like, everyone's hungry. How hungry are you? You got to get going here. Yeah. So you get through B school and you ultimately decide to take the commercial real estate path. What kind of led to that decision? And tell us a little bit about your role now with Driven Capital. Life's all about relationships in the end. And that's going to lead you and it's going to block you. And that's the reality of it. So Chris Klein was an executive board member in 2010 when I was getting started with the union. Right. And I was representing my team. So I had, I basically reported to Chris and Chris and I just built like, we, we, we were on the same page a lot of the time. And he, he was very just great with his time and, he started off with the Galaxy, and then he rose to president. And when I was playing for the when I was playing for Chivas USA, he was the president of the Galaxy, like in the same locker, in the same building, competing forces. But we would still go out to lunch, you know. And I would just pick his brain, like, "What would you be doing if you were me?" And one of them, one of the things he told me was business school. And so we just went down this path. And as I was at the Galaxy and started business school, we just had this agreement that I would go and work for the Galaxy as when I retired, we didn't know when that was going to be, you know, I thought it was going to be three years, but it turned out being, I, I played for the galaxy for one. So immediately I was in business school. I'm like, well, I'm going to re I'm retiring. So let's start. 
And I got thrown into the front office. It was a great experience. And it's the front office of a professional sports environment is it's, it's exciting. It's fun. But for a guy like me, what I learned after a year, a little over a year working there was like, man, I either got to kind of be in a role where I can call the shots or I can't be here because I'm way too opinionated about what's happening. And, and it may have been that at the time the galaxy was really struggling. So I have plenty of ideas. Let me tell you about them. Right. <laughs> so for me, it was more about like, well, I'm, I'm here. I want to be here, but if I can't do what I want to do here, what am I doing here? Right. Yeah. And so I asked myself that a lot and, and my contract with the galaxy coincided with my, with me wrapping up business school and it was intentional. I was just envisioning this streamlined path. But when I played one, the one story I haven't told is when I played uh, and I started making money, um, I, w- I invested in real estate and it was always in this mindset of, Hey, this thing's going to be over yesterday. So you better be smart with your money because you like to live a good life and it's going to hurt if you're not. And I enjoyed like making money. <laughs> so I was buying, you know, 2011, I'm buying like sh- crappy little homes and renting them out. And, but I would buy a, like a crappy little home and paint it and refinish the floors and clean it up and then rent it out and be like 500 bucks cash flow. Be like, okay, let's mm. go. I'm at the time I was 30 years old, you know, 29 years old, just started making like, I think it was like 175 or 200 grand. So I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was living very modestly and I was saving and I'd been saving, even when I lived in Puerto Rico, I was saving 500 bucks a month. So I, I could make nothing and find a way to save money. So I just started doing it. And my my business partner today, he was he was investment banker out of college. He played football at UC Davis. And then uh, he went into the tech space. And then he went and joined Facebook. And his wife worked at Google. And my wife is uh, best friends with his wife. So it's like Matt and I were going to be hanging out whether we wanted to or not, right? <laughs> like no decision in the process. That's but we were, yeah, we were always like trading notes, you know, it was like, okay, like we're both making decent money now. What are we doing with it? And so we, we just kind of like followed this strategy and after doing it for four years, like, I mean, there was a couple of years there where I made more money investing in real estate than I did in soccer, you know? And so I was like, I should have, I kicked myself now because I'm like, I should have attacked it then. I should have attacked it. I should have been like, you know what? You, you're making money now, go get it. And I didn't have that mentality. I was really just learning and, and trying to figure it out. So 2015, Matt and I started like waffling on the what ifs of a investment commercial real estate shop. And in 2017, when I was wrapping up business school and I had made the decision that I could not work at the Galaxy anymore. And I was basically just going to be like, I'm either, I'm going to just go do investment real estate stuff until I find a job that I'm happy with, you know? And Matt was like, dude, I'm done at Facebook. And mm-hmm. we were, so we were on vacation together and this is, I don't know, April or May of 17. And it was just like, okay, well, let's, let's do it, man. Yeah. So, so tell us about that. So you're managing partner at Driven Capital out in Long Beach. What what does your role entail, and and what are some of the projects that you guys get into? We so so in 2017, uh, so in business school, this is caveat. Business school, I started investing in what's called syndications and real estate, mm-hmm. 
And I was like, it was a light bulb moment, you know, it's like you, in, in your life, you have these critical moments that you, that'll take you down paths if you want them to. And I was like, man, this is what every single professional athlete should be doing. Because the, the, the hard thing, when you think about investing, the traditional books like, ah, 401k, you know, all these long-term investment vehicles is great product in 25 years, you're going to have a million dollars. Well, dude, when you're a professional athlete, your career is over when you're 32, that's not, you can't get there. <laughs> you can't get there, right? So it's like, what are you doing today that's going to prepare you for when you retire in five or 10 years? So that's why it's like the traditional investment model does not work for professional athletes. It doesn't. And so yeah. that's where I'm like, so th th this is the realization I have. It's like syndications, commercial real estate, athletes. I can put it all together. I know I can. And Matt was like, dude, same thing. Like these Facebook and Google employees are smart people. They're working 900 hours a week. They don't have time to do this. I can do it for them and we can do it the right way. And so that was, I mean, you know, we get two uh, just motivated guys and we have completely complementary skill sets. Like we are complete, we are just the most polar opposite of people, but it's, it makes for a very healthy business environment. You know, we challenge each other and we will not do anything that we're not both completely on board with. And so we started, we, we did our first deal in 2018 and we were just like, well, you know, like you just don't know if you're going to be able to raise the money in the yeah. end. So we were like, in the end, we need to be able to buy it ourselves because we're going to go take all this risk. Like we're going to set up a loan. We're going to go earn us money, deposit hard. Like we, at the end, we'll just buy it ourselves. And uh, I think we raised like 500 grand and we did our first deal and it's like, okay. And then that deal perform today, still today is performing phenomenally phenomenally that was just like okay we, we've done a deal we're a business like we're trying to get it going and now we have 10 assets under management and we'll probably have 13 before the end of the year we are every day getting better at what we do and my roles uh, we kind of look at it as i am the asset manager so once we purchase a property i take care of it we both raise capital through our networks and Matt, because of his financial background, does a lot of our underwriting and the, the private equity structure is how we structure our deals. So it's not new, right? We're just yep. overlaying that on a, on a piece of real estate and right. we're, we're focused on just creating passive income for investors and storing wealth and getting the, the, the tax benefits you get from investing in real estate. And when you talk, like we're California guys, you know, like real estate's a conversation. It, it's a centerpiece of everybody's day. Like mm -hmm. housing prices are through the roof. The barriers to entry are so high that if, if, if you guys want to go buy a really high quality commercial piece of real estate, you're going to need millions of dollars. And so the, how we are trying to break down that barrier is say, no, Driven Capital Partners is going to set up an entity that buys the asset. Matt and I take on all of the debt liability. So the investor has no debt liability in a, in a commercial real estate investment. That's a pretty damn attractive uh, benefit of, of syndication. And when you place your money into the deal, you own some portion of the deal, but not all of it. And why that's important is because, well, if something does go wrong, you're not the only one on the hook, right? If you, especially yeah. if you only own 2% of a deal. So um, we look at this as the as the means to scaling 
a commercial real estate portfolio and diversifying. And we want to de-risk um, in investments. And so typically an investor will come. I, the way I, I look at it is we're not asking people for money. We're saying, hey, guys, this is what we do. We buy high quality commercial assets. And if, if you want to be a real estate investor, well, we're going to allow you to do it in growing markets that have, you know, these demographics of business growth, population growth. We're going to let you invest in a higher quality asset than you would ever be able to own on your own. We gonna, we're going to spend the time deal sourcing. I mean, we, we've been cultivating these, these deal sourcing relationships for two and a half years now. And that is not like you. So if, if, if either of you had a million bucks and you're like, I'm going to go buy a piece of commercial real estate. Well, how the hell do you know if you have a, if you're going to get a good deal or not? Yeah. Yeah. Is that the direction that you think athletes should be heading? Because we, we've heard, you know, some of our guests on the show, they talk about, yeah, I, I dip my toe in maybe some residential, maybe a little bit of commercial. But then you realize like, OK, well, you're to your point, taking on a tremendous amount of risk. And especially if you are somebody who maybe if you're currently playing, you've got some income coming in, but if you've got no active income coming in and you're sort of now living off of whatever, 80 to 90% of your lifetime income that you've made as a, as a you know NFL player, NBA player on one property, do you think this is the direction that more players should be heading? Or is it again, a well, case by we, case basis? The, the, and the term has been beat to a pulp, but diversification is, is a real thing. And so if you yeah. got $100, to go invest over the next 18 months. I mean, you want to go throw it on Tesla and see what happens, <laughs> you know, maybe I, yeah. I don't, you know, yeah. I'm probably going to go and look at that hundred dollars and say, okay, I'm going to do 10 deals and I'm going to spread that across 10 deals and it's going to be diversified and it's going to be diversified in asset class. So in real estate, we talk about apartments, mobile home parks, industrial warehouse space, medical offices, offices, hospitality, so we're, I'm going to sprinkle it across those today, COVID lifestyle. I'm not touching hospitality. I'm not touching office. You know, I can start checking a bunch of these off the box. And, yeah. and then my success will, my success may be lower than if I just go put it on Tesla. But at the same time, like, I'm just not going to lose my, lose my ass either. Right. Yes. If they're sound, the, the if they're sound, yeah, well. that's yeah. the most important thing is we're talking about storing capital and we're talking about building passive income. So it's a, uh, for me, it's a really exciting thing because I actually think I'm going to have a much bigger impact on major league soccer through what I'm doing now than I ever had on the field or with the players association. Wow. You hit on it a bit with quality deal flow and the cost of entry. What are some of the other things that nobody talks about when you get into the real estate business? It, well, every deal changes, man. So you go like Santa Barbara, California, the Riviera of California. Like this, talk about desirability. I think you just had the, the Prince just moved there, right? And so, and, and, and it's, it's up against a, a mountain. So the, your ability to, we call it infill in commercial real estate. There's no place to build. So it's, it's all about supply demand drivers, right? And the supply is not going to grow. It's one of the nicest places to live in California. And it has, it does have a steady, very slow population growth. But what's happening in Santa Barbara is like, think about COVID. I mean, everybody can work from home now. So where do you want to live? Well, we want to live in Santa Barbara. Okay. We're going to go buy some apartments there. 
because it's like the market vacancy is 1.7%, which is a reflection of turnover, not mm -hmm. apartments sitting empty. So really healthy investor market. It's also very expensive. And so we went and purchased an office building and we call it an adaptive reuse project where we entitled it. So now that we, we can turn it into 23 apartments, it's a development uh, deal. Well, our business model based on zoning in Santa Barbara was that it was going to be 17 apartments. Okay. We're stoked on mm -hmm. 17 apartments. Well, a couple problems happened. The city tried to make us have affordable housing. What we found out was that if we have to have affordable housing, the state says we can increase the density. So we got 23 units. Home run for investors. Home run. Well, we were very resourceful and we paid couple $15,000 to attorneys to get this deal done. And now the original loan that we put on the property, it does it won't work because we don't have enough money. We have enough money to build 17 apartments, not 23. And this all happened during COVID. So how, like talk about terrible timing. Yeah. Right. And so we went from now we have to refinance the property during COVID. We still don't have our construction permits. And we're like, man, this is pretty stressful here. If it was all Dan Kennedy's money, I would have been, I mean, I'm already getting a little light up top, but I would have been bald, <laughs> right? Now, that being said, we navigated it. We reduced our interest rate by 5% with a refinance. It's huge. Huge, yeah. huge yeah. reduction in interest rate. We got the proceeds to go and execute on the 23 units. We should finish the project February of next year. And we had a we had a conservative lease up projection on the back end of this thing that I think that I think will actually still beat it. And this should be a, it, honestly, I think it's going to play out really well for investors. Now, let's say investors make 50 cents on their dollar in two years. Okay, so it's 25 IRR. That's a great thing for investors. And it would have been a great thing for me. Now, personally, right? But I would have been taking all the risk. And you know what? Maybe rents slide. In San Francisco, rents have already slid 11% because of COVID. Santa Barbara is mm -hmm. not having the same problem. And I don't think they will. It's not going to be impacted the same way. It's not as high density. But let's say rents slide and the property valuation is lower because we can't get high enough rents. Well, the investors are still going to make their money. I'm sorry, excuse me. They're still going to make money, but they're not going to, we have a risk of not meeting the projected return, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so this is why, this is the exact reason why you don't want to own everything by yourself. Like, let's spread it out. And these same investors that are in on this deal own some apartments in Atlanta that are performing great. The same investors own an industrial warehouse building in Boise, Idaho, which Boise's market is just going absolutely bananas. That is going to be a consistent deal. So I equate what we do when I talk to athletes. I'm like, hey, we're going to go get fit today. We're going to do one workout and we're going to be fit. No, impossible, right? That's like me saying, hey, I'm going to, we're going to go do one real estate deal and we're going to be rich. It's impossible. What we want to do is we just want to be consistent. So it's like, hey, I'm going to make X this year. I'm going to take 10% of X 
and I'm going to invest it in real estate every single year. And I know that Driven Capital Partners is going to let me come in at 25 grand, 50 grand a share, and I'm going to get to do two or three deals a year. And I don't have to do anything. And on a quarterly basis, they automatically ACH transfer to me any cash flow distributions. And on a quarterly basis, they provide me an investor update. And then by March 15th of, of the calendar year, they get, I get all my tax documentation so I can submit it at tax time. That is passive income. Yeah. So what the, the designation, people talk about investing in real estate for passive income. It's not passive if you're the operator. That That's a job. <laughs> that's what I do. This is my job, yeah. right? So this is what I learned when I was investing in the single family homes. Like, okay, I own five homes. I'm feeling... I'm going to be the next uh, Donald Trump on five single family homes. And um, man, like, okay, now I got to go. Where do I, I got two houses in Plano and I got a subterranean pipe break. that's going to cost me 18 grand to fix. And I got to go find Ray the plumber to fix this. And is he going to do it? Should I fly out there? What the hell am I doing? Well, in, in the commercial world, if this happens, first of all, the insurance coverage is much better than it is in residential. But yeah, I'm on a plane. I'm there. That's my responsibility to our investors. So, you know, yesterday I flew back from Milwaukee because we're final walkthrough on a property that we're going to buy there. And man, I came back from that trip and I texted my, I texted Matt. I was like, I could not feel better about our COVID strategy. I could not feel better about it. Yeah. We're going in the yeah. right direction. Sorry, there, I'll just there, steal the mic, guys. You guys, is, you gotta be no, careful. No, no, this is on. this is great, man. I'm learning a ton too because, I, as uh, Tim knows this, but my dad and I have a have a rental property that we went in on probably seven years ago, and I think we learned that lesson the hard way, which is if you're if you're the landlord and you're sort of you know going in and checking on the pipes or whatever happens, like it's not passive. Like you think that's what we thought we we were getting into, and and to your point, like it's one property, right? So yeah, it was a sort of smaller apartment kind of thing, but I can't imagine like. As your your checkbook gets larger, your appetite gets larger. So yeah, we went in on a small apartment. You know, an athlete who's made you know ten years in the NFL is probably going in on a whole building, and dealing with all the issues. Like, you know, if you're playing in Kansas City, you go buy a handful of things in Kansas City, and then you get traded, and you better have a damn good property management team in place. Yeah, or you better yeah. be very resourceful. Yeah, is there is there something from your playing days that you've now taken into? your role as as an investor as a property manager is there something that you brought from, from as a goalkeeper or anything else well i mean i am i've always been a very hard worker that was the mm. nature of my existence in major league soccer it was like okay in my own mind whether it was true or not in my own mind i outworked every goalkeeper in the league yeah i'm sure there's a handful of other goalkeepers that would tell you the same thing but that was my mindset right? Was that's rise and grind, baby. Come on. That's work. And that's, and then as I got older, it's like, okay, I, I can't burden this physical load. I got to work smarter. So more video, more like, you know, smart training. And, and it's the same, you know, across categories and business. If you can take that mindset and, and be willing to learn, you're going to improve. If you're a hard worker, you are going to find a way to improve. And so that's what we're doing. It's like, now we have an investor platform. Our investors can sign into it. They can see every single thing that they own, what their distributions have been, what their ownership shares, how the property is performing, pictures of the property, like all of these little things you just continue to iterate and improve on. And that's when you think like, you know, 
And when I was 28, I was like, man, I'm in the prime. I'm an all-star, right? So that's what I'm, I'm trying to achieve with our business is like, we want to be the best. Like I see, I'm invested in deals that are not my deals. I invested, I told you, I invested in other syndications. I get to see their reporting. And, and oftentimes I'm like, dude, this reporting sucks. I'm like, we're going to be better than them. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just a competitive guy. Like, I just want to be better than them. And in the end, the, the, the investments will, will, will tell the story. So I, w- I would say it's that discipline and diligence and just like kind of get after it mentality. You can probably tell like I'm in, I like to engage with people and, and that's <laughs> it's helpful. Like I go to Milwaukee, I meet with brokers meet with attorneys, meet with the deal makers in Milwaukee. And I have to build in that relationship, right? We do the same thing in Huntsville, same thing in Boise. So we can't just go there and be dicks for lack of better term, you know, like you got to, we try to bring people into our deals. Like if, if, if I have a broker repping deals in Santa Barbara, like I want him to invest in the deal. I want him to think the deal is so good that he has to have action. So that's like, I, I love working in like this team dynamic and environment. So me sitting in my three computer screens working all day, it's not mentally, it's not the best thing for me. It's, it's now some, yeah. you know, three days, two days a week, it's, it's required. But I, I'm trying to get out and tell a little bit of the story of why we're doing what we're doing and how we're trying to help people and make investing in, in high quality commercial assets a little bit easier. You hit on it with... The bit about, you know, maybe having gotten after it a little bit earlier in your career, what would be a piece of advice that you would give your younger self with all that you know now? Well, it would have been to start start investing more often and and more proactively. And I mean, it's the coulda, woulda, shoulda. Like you have kids now that I pay like right. We're all paying with our time. That's what it comes down to. It, it is literally like uh, every single day I'm like, okay, can I get done at 4.30? Can I get everything that I need to get done today at 4.30? So I can go and rage with the kids from about five to seven, you know? Cause in the mornings I'm useless. In the mornings I'm so like, I got, I got like 3000 things on my mind. I need to just leave me alone and I need to start working. So my wife and I have a really good balance, but yeah, I mean, if, if I was to talk to my younger self, I would have been like, man, you got to go learn. You got to start investing earlier. And and the reality is, you know, I'd have been further along today financially. And that to me equates to freedom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so Dan, uh, you've been so gracious with your time. You know, where we like to close with all of our guests is looking to the future. You obviously got a lot of things in the works. What are you most excited about as you look forward, both for, for Driven Capital and for you personally? Well, we're uh, driven capital partners. We're going to continue to grow. I'm excited about where we're going. I'm excited. We're actually going to start transacting on some deals in 2021, which will return capital to investors. It'll continue to tell our story. It'll create a little bit of momentum, which it's just, it's required, right? I mean, we're playing the long game. Matt and I are playing the long game. And part of that long game is we have two wives that have bought in. They've bought into what we're doing and they both work extremely hard to give us cash flow, you know? And so one of one thing I'm really excited about is as we grow the company, I think in about 18 months, two years, we should be in a position to unlock our wives from their jobs 
And that'll be, uh, that'll, I mean, talk about a tangible value, right? Like yeah. to, to unlock them from ever having to work again. Like that's the goal. The short-term personal goal is, is, and then there's a, there's a huge, you know, family impact to that and she can work if she wants, but she doesn't have to. That's the key, right? I think it'll just be a good work-life balance for both of us. We're working a little bit too hard and that time that we free up. I mean, our kids are so young. Like, can we remember when we were four or five? Like, no, I can't anyways. <laughs> like maybe I've hit my head too many times with a soccer ball, but um, the way I'm, I'm trying to be patient is like, okay, kids are young. They're doing great. They're much smarter than I was at that age. So let's just grind it a little bit here. And, and we're going to have, you know, we're going to, we're going to, the, the fruits of our labor will be shown with the time that we'll be able to pay in, in the coming years, I think with our children. And I see as like my children grow, like I, I, I already see it. Uh, I know I'm going to get back involved in youth soccer and I think that's like, I would like to have more time to give. And so it's a double-edged kind of sword we're talking about here, but unlocking it to where I can go and like impact young men and women um, on the soccer field. Because really like people love sports because it's such a great comparison of life. Like, dude, you're just going to get kicked while you're down. Okay. Just accept it. It just and the the quicker you can accept it and roll with the punches, and that's what sports does such a great job of teaching you. I, I you got to you know you give give you a real fighting chance in this whole mess. Well, Dan, I mean, I I love that uh, idea of being able to get buy-in from your spouses. My mentor Alex, when he was starting his first fund, you know, we we were getting coffee, and he basically said, "The first LP that I have to get buy into my fund is my wife." And I was like, hey, that's actually a great way before you, you take the LP deck to anybody else. So look, I, I love that. And, and uh, I'm so excited that you guys have found your direction uh, that you're building towards, that you're taking some of the lessons that you've uh, learned over your many years, both uh, in MLS and beyond, and sharing it with our listeners today. We just want to thank you so much for joining us on the oh, game Oh, come on. It's been a pleasure, guys. Um, sorry for stealing the mic. No, this this was this was phenomenal. It's your show. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. Enjoyed it, guys. All right, another great episode of the game plan, this time with former MLS goalkeeper turned real estate investor Dan Kennedy. We've got eight minutes on the clock. Let's get into this week's partner rundown. Jay, how do you think athletes should approach investing into real estate? Yeah, so Dan and other guests have made this point that when athletes get involved in real estate, what they think is actually getting passive income doesn't turn out to be that passive after all. They're spending a lot of their time sourcing these opportunities, sourcing these deals. They're spending a lot of time as landlords of this business. And they're putting a lot of capital and time up front, which doesn't really leave them opportunities to go do other things in retirement. You know, the challenge with that is as an athlete, you're making the bulk of your money by the time you're 30. And so now the reason real estate investing is so popular with athletes is they are taking that lump sum payment and turning it into something that they can make back over the next, let's say, 20, 25 years in rent payments. As those mortgages start falling off, they start to actually build some equity in the business. That's all great. But you know, Dan made the point that if you're going to go in there as a real estate investor, look at it like a portfolio approach. Instead of putting a million dollars into one apartment in one market, potentially work with a manager that's going to have done the work up front for you. Sure, you're paying some management fees, but you get a much more diversified portfolio. Yeah, the idea of an athlete going out there, or really anyone 
and you have to buy a new air conditioning unit or a new fridge or hire a handyman to fix the toilets in the unit that you own. I think pretty quickly you have a wake up call of like, what have I gotten myself into? And you're not going to experience economies of scale on that until you own and manage a series of properties. And so, you know, athletes got enough going on early on in their career, just focus on what's going on on the court or on the field. So to get into passive real estate investing is a great option for them where they don't have to worry about all that management. Yes, it comes with fees. There's a challenge with that, but they can get access to great funds like Dan's or others because of who they are. And they should leverage that so they can start to get some of that passive income. And then by the time they retire, to your point, they're getting checks versus, oh, let's store it all away till I'm retired when I'm 40 or sorry, when I'm 50 or 60 years old, like the rest of us try to build wealth for the long term. They want, they have a lifestyle they want to continue. And, and so it goes. Yeah. And Dan worked for the LA Galaxy before he became a real estate investor. And you and I know firsthand the expectation reality gap, having both worked at teams and leagues. So Tim, tell me, what are some insights from your time there? Yeah. So look, that first day when you roll up to the facility and you you realize you're working for an NFL team like I was when I was 23, it's awesome. It's great. You put the logo on your shirt. You know, for me, it was a little odd because I'm a diehard Packers fan and here I am wearing a Lions symbol. So maybe that's one insight is like, if you're going to get into it and work for a team, make sure it's a team that you're super passionate about. But what I saw was the money flows to the players and the owners and the people around me were working 60, 70 hours a week and they had been there for decades and they were willing to make a sacrifice because they were fans first really and then employees of these teams so i think there's so many other ways to get into sport and sports business and that's the path in my career that i ended up taking which i was really happy about i think the brand value of working in sports is there look i'm very grateful for the three seasons that i spent working at the nfl and to this day i think it opens up opportunities for me because of the network that i built there and the close relationships i still keep with some of my colleagues who are still there but the biggest thing that surprised me, especially those of us that followed tech companies and sort of came up in this generation of, of technology and innovation, is how conservative and frankly slow to move teams and leagues are when it comes to new innovation. You hear about this idea of protect the shield. Well, why is that? Because they've built this brand over many generations. They have ownership stakes from 32 different teams. So every decision has to go through multiple layers of approval. And, and I think most sports teams and leagues in general don't have the mentality of move fast and break things. And so when you're coming in as somebody young and you're saying, I want to work with these startups, I want to bring these companies to bear, let's try to do something innovative with technology, it's a lot harder to get that through. And that was a big expectation reality gap for me. Well, that makes me think of one thing I definitely want to hit on, which is the expansion of Major League Soccer. By 2023, the league will have added 10 teams in 10 years. Do you think that expansion is good for the growth of the game or bad? Well, Tim, if you look back at the last five years, I think in 2015, when an expansion team was coming into the MLS, it cost $100 million. I think the last 28th and 29th team cost about $200 million, And it looks like the next set of teams is going to cost $325 million. So clearly the value of the MLS teams is going up. And on the whole, it's a good idea for there to be more teams because that's more opportunities for players who played at the youth level to go pursue their dreams pro, right? There's 3 million youth soccer participants in the U.S., more seats means more opportunity. The challenge is that the more teams you add doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a quality of product and also doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be enough salary for folks to pursue their dreams professionally. MLS salaries just haven't gone up at the rate that some of the other leagues have thanks to the media rights. And it's a challenge when you keep adding more mouths to feed.
Yeah, I would say the most concerning thing for me is definitely the quality of the product on the field. Now, I'll give the MLS some credit because they've started to really push this idea of youth development academies for each team, as well as encouraging teams to look outside of the U.S. for talent. And teams like Atlanta United have done a good job tapping into Central America and South America for talent. But when you add more teams, there's only a finite amount of resources for those teams. And I worry that I'm not hearing enough about how MLS is going to focus on and leverage the World Cup in 2026, for example. There's been this kind of split between U.S. soccer and the MLS, and I think that that's really bad for the growth of the game here in the States. I think they need to figure out a way to work together, and they need to make sure that this upcoming World Cup does the same thing for soccer in the U.S. that the original one back in 92 did when the league came out of that. No, that's that's a great point, Tim. One thing I want to make sure we hit on because it was big news this week was that Diageo announced their acquisition of Ryan Reynolds' aviation gin for a whopping $610 million, 335 up front, and then the rest in earnouts. I want to hear, how did it go down with you? Well, look, every celebrity, every athlete, everyone I've ever talked to always has this big aspiration to create a brand. Hey, look at what George Clooney did with Casamigos. I can go do that. Look at what Rihanna's done with Fenty. I can go do that. Okay, Let's see you go do it. Now, kudos to Ryan Reynolds and his team because he dug in, he invested his capital, he invested his time, and most of all, he put his brand on the line to see this acquisition happen, to see Aviation Gin take off. So easier said than done. I don't know the economics of it, but clearly Diageo is happy with how Casamigos has played out for them, and they're hoping that this can be another success just as big as that one. I think your point about skin in the game cannot be stressed enough. A lot of folks want to come in. We've heard the wave of celebrity investors and the value add that celebrity investors bring. And I think what's been played out over the last decade is actually most of them don't bring that much value. But when you start to create skin in the game and you start to say, hey, there is meaningful equity ownership here that is vesting the way it would for a normal, you know, your CTO vests the same way that Ryan Reynolds does. And you start to look at the way that the involvement of these celebrities with skin in the game starts to create a halo effect around the brand. We talk about community first growth on this show a ton. And the problem with it is building a community takes a long time. So if you're an upstart D2C brand and you can find a cult figure or somebody who really embodies the values of your brand and you start to build a community around them and around their aura, and then you've got the distribution and you've got a really quality product, well, that sounds like a great cocktail for success. It's just unfortunate that not everybody can make it happen. Wow, I was 100% with you till you dropped that pun. No, but it's a great point, as all your points were. Jay, thanks for joining me on this partner rundown. I'll see you next week. I'm going to go have a drink. (laughs) So that's it for this week's episode of The Game Plan with Jay Kapoor and Tim Cott. Thank you for tuning in. We really enjoyed having our guest Dan Kennedy on the show to share his journey and what he's working on today. Make sure to follow him across social media on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And a special thanks to Andrew Hayes for connecting us with Dan. If you made it this far, you must really like what we have to say. Find us on Twitter at The Game Plan Show and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We'll see you next week on The Game Plan.